everybody. Welcome to um, Redemption Church on this uh, Arts in the Heart weekend, Arts in the Heart of Augusta weekend. I'm messing up their music. I'm sorry. Um, welcome, welcome to Redemption Church. Arts in the Heart is a great time in the city of Augusta, a time to celebrate. If, if you ever want to see Ben happy and in a good mood, it's during Arts in the Heart of Augusta. Other than that, you're out of luck. Um, but I got to spend some time last night with Ben out at Arts in the Heart, and he was just, he was so joyful, and I texted him like three or four times after we left, not really, once, and just said, your joy was kind of infectious, it was kind of nice. Um, but anyway, Arts in the Heart, and uh, we are um, able to serve our community a little bit. They're actually using our building as one of the stages, and so all afternoon, uh, it will be used again this afternoon um, by Mahogany Lounge, I think is who will be here today. Um, but anyway, so welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Reggie. I'm one of the pastor's elders here at Redemption. And this morning, uh, we are continuing on in our series through 1 Peter. Uh, we're calling this series Set Apart. And uh, essentially what we're doing is just moving slowly through 1 Peter, and uh, we're going to preach through all of it. And over the next few weeks, um, we're actually going to deal with the same set of 12 verses for three, three weeks in a row. So uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12 uh, this Sunday and the next two Sundays, we'll all be camping out in those verses. And um, there'll be some different points of emphasis, some different points of application that we talk through as we move through those verses. We'll talk about gospel, community, mission, maybe some about our purpose, our vision, different things like that uh, as we camp out in this passage over the next few weeks, like I said. So with that said, um, let's pray, and then we'll move on talking about First Peter Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, in just a second. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you um, for the opportunity to be present uh, this morning, gathered with your people, gathered around the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on our behalf. Um, Holy Father, I recognize that as I stand on this stage, apart from the work of Christ, apart from the work of gospel, I am wholly unworthy to stand before you and to even talk about your word. But because of Jesus, we can be here together, we can worship together, and we can boldly approach your throne of grace. And so, Holy Father, I pray over the next few minutes as we look at your word, as we talk about some uh, applications and some big themes that we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, that through it all, Jesus would be glorified and lifted high. And God, we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. Holy Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way and that we would hear from you and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. And God, we pray all this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Over uh, this past week, as I was thinking about this passage and sort of preparing for this sermon and preparing for what's going on in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, I began to think... Uh, or begin to figure out how am I going to approach this passage, right? And, and, and I'll get to it in a second, uh, but I began to wonder about some of the dangerous things that I've faced in my life. Like, I, if, as I think back over the last, I'm 42, over the last 42 years of my life, what are some of the dangerous things I've faced? I've never been in the military, so I've never been in battle. I've never had my life actually, like, threatened by another person, what, what dangers have I faced in my life? And so I got to thinking back just over things that I've uh, been a part of or things that I've done. Uh, three different times in my life, I've literally 
like almost stepped on a poisonous snake. Snakes scare me to death, uh, but I didn't step on it, and I've survived, even though I'm still scared. Uh, whenever I was seven, I fell out of a second-story hayloft in a barn. If you wondered what's wrong with me, that's it. Um, I broke my arm, and that's really the only thing that happened to me. Um, shortly after 9-11, I was flying back into Atlanta, and um, a plane was coming down the land, and the wheels had touched on the runway, and then all of a sudden, we didn't know what was going on. The pilot floored it, and like the plane takes off at an angle and goes back up, and the whole plane is like screaming and like, what's going on? So the pilot gets us back up in the air, and we found out that a plane had like turned onto the wrong runway in front of us right after we landed. So he just had to like gun it and take off again. It was pretty scary, and uh, everybody on the plane was freaking out until the pilot explained um, what had happened. I've been in several car, car wrecks in my life. Uh, when, I was in a when I was a child, I was in several car wrecks without a car seat or a seat belt. Because back when I was a child, even though it doesn't seem like that long ago, kids didn't have to go in car seats. Um, and I don't know why my parents didn't make me wear a seat belt, but they didn't. Um, been in several car wrecks. Whenever I was a teenager, I fell asleep driving home to my house a couple of times late at night. That's not very smart, but I've done it. And so after I thought through all these things, I wondered, like, what are the dangerous things that I might potentially face now? And so I looked up, like, the top 10 causes of death for men in my age group. I'm 42. Eight of the top 10 causes of death are internal sickness. All right, the only other two causes of death are, are uh, suicide and unintentional injury for men in my age group. The top three are heart disease, cancer, and unintentional injuries. And so... Um, and I have high blood pressure, so I, I, you know, I'm moving toward one of those things already. But so I started thinking, like, the dangerous things that I face, the most dangerous things that I face as a 42-year-old man living in the United States, the most dangerous things that I face are actually things that are close to me. The, the things that are most likely to kill me are things that are close to me and internal to me rather than something external to me. Right? I'm much more at risk to be harmed by something close to me, something that I do every day, like driving in a vehicle, than I am to be harmed by anything else. Right? That those are the chances. Uh, the statistics say that's what's going to get me. And so the point I'm making is this. Many of the dangers that I actually face are internal to me, and they're close to me. They're not external to me. 1 Peter Verses one, First um, Peter chapter two, verses one through twelve. Let's read it together. I think it'll be up here on the screen, and I'll read through this passage as well. First Peter chapter two, verses one through twelve. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First Peter chapter 2, these 12 verses are some of my most favorite verses in all of Scripture. I love them dearly. And so, specifically, what I want to do this morning, and especially since we're going to be looking at these sets of verses over the next couple of weeks, the next few weeks, is I'm going to look at some big themes this morning. Um, but before I dive into those big themes, let's, let's talk about what's actually going on in these verses, right? In, first, in verses 1 through, P, 1 through 3, Peter tells these exiles to put away certain things and instead long for the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. Chapter 1 closes talking about the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and right here Peter says long for that pure spiritual milk. And the focus is on longing for something like a child longing to be fed. I, I remember when my daughter Laurel, she's my youngest daughter, was, was a baby, um, like during the day Laurel would eat like every three hours and she would be perfectly happy. But what we didn't realize for some of the first few weeks of her life is we would feed her at night. And about an hour later, she would just start crying and bawling, and just be completely upset. And uh, eventually, we finally figured out she's, just, she's hungry sooner at night than she is during the day. But when I think about longing to be fed, right, that's the picture I have. My daughter just unconsol- inconsolable because she wants to eat. And so Peter is telling these exiles to long for the good news of the gospel, And the focus there is actually on longing for something, longing to be fed, longing to take in that gospel. In verses 4 through 8, Peter is focusing on Jesus, right? How Jesus is the one that set these people apart to himself. How Jesus is the one that gives them an identity, not just individually, but as a group. How Jesus sets these people apart to worship him. How Jesus becomes a tripping hazard for those who will not build their lives on him. And Peter refers back to the Old Testament and quotes the Old Testament even as he's pointing to Jesus. Verses 9 and 10, Peter hammers home this idea of being given an identity and being set apart by God just repeatedly. You're chosen, you're a priesthood, you're holy, you're set apart with a purpose. You're a new people. In verses 11 and 12, Peter shows how that identity should actually play out on a day-to-day basis for these elect exiles. That's what's going on overall in that passage. But there's two big themes that show up again and again and again. One is identity, one is the gospel. One is identity, one is Jesus. Over and over and over in this passage, Peter talks about Jesus, Peter talks about identity, and he just hammers that truth home over and over and over. And so I... Part of what I think Peter is doing in hammering home the identity 
that we have through Christ and hammering home Jesus and the gospel and the good news of, uh, of Jesus. Part of what I think Peter is doing is he's essentially setting these people up. He's essentially giving this information, uh, I think, in part to warn against forgetting your identity and forgetting the gospel. If someone were to ask you what you thought were the greatest dangers to your Christian experience, what would you answer? What would you say is the greatest danger to your walk with God? If someone would ask you what you thought were the greatest threats to Christianity in America, what would be your response? If someone would say, what is the most significant attack against the church of Jesus Christ today, what would you answer? And I think you already know by my first illustration talking about the things that are dangerous to me, that I don't think it's something that's external to us, and I don't think that the greatest danger to our Christian walk and to the church in America is something external to us at all. I think the greatest dangers to us, and I think Peter's picking up on that here, and Peter's hammering it home uh, to these people, is that it's very easy for us to think that the threats, the most significant dangers to us, to our walk with Christ, to our church, is something outside of the church entirely. Right? Some would say that maybe the rise of functional atheism is, in America is a great danger to the church because more and more people think there's no need to believe in God. Some would say maybe that the gross materialism of Western culture that says all of life is about physical things and physical experiences is the greatest threat to Christianity. Some would say it's the rampant immorality of Western culture where anything seems to be okay and where we make sex and beauty our idols. Some would say that so-called liberal political ideologies are the biggest threat to the church. I, on the other hand, am deeply persuaded that Peter was onto something completely different than that. I am deeply persuaded that Peter was onto the fact that the greatest threats to the church are not found outside of the church. The greatest dangers to our discipleship and seeing the gospel advance and walking with God are much more subtle. Just like the dangers to my life are much closer to me, maybe, than I even realize. In fact, I would argue, as Peter does, I think, over and over and over again in this very relevant letter, that the greatest danger is actually found within our own hearts, within our own minds. The first danger that I think Peter is guarding against and hammering home is what I'll call the danger of identity amnesia. Identity amnesia, that in the press of life in a fallen world, in the press of family and education and career and friendships and all the things that we do, our hobbies, that keep us so busy that we would forget who we are, that you would forget who you are who we are in Christ, right? That we would forget that we haven't just been forgiven, but that we've been given a brand new identity, an identity that should change everything about, about everything, an identity that changes the way we think about everything, what we're, what we're motivated by, what we pursue, what we are to be doing. And the danger of forgetting our identity in Christ is that identity amnesia leads to identity replacement. If you're not getting your identity vertically, the way that God intended through Jesus Christ, 
then we're going to look to get it horizontally, right? You'll turn your education into an identity. Education is obviously important, but it's not an identity. You'll turn your marriage into an identity, and you'll try to turn your spouse into your own personal Messiah. And if you haven't figured out, that doesn't work, right? You'll turn parenting into an identity, and even more so, you'll turn your children into your idols. Your life will become defined by what sports your children play and their grades in school and their extracurricular activities. I live in a neighborhood where all the families around me, I am convinced that it's becoming more and more obvious, have turned their family life into their religion and the thing they worship the most. Some of us even have the temptation to turn our problems and our sins into an identity. Some of us may experience very real things like depression, and we turn that into an identity. I, I don't want to denigrate that profound human experience. It's real and it's difficult, but it's not an identity. And if you turn it into an identity, then it becomes something even more harmful than it already is. Some of us like to define ourselves by our sins, and we say things like, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm this, or I'm that. As if the sin that we return to over and over and over is the thing that identifies us. But as a believer, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, as somebody been, that's been given a new identity in Christ, your sin can never define you because Jesus defeated that sin. And so when we fail to remember the identity that we have in Christ, we fail to realize what Christ has made us to be and who Christ has set us apart to be and how he's made us his own People, when we fail to grasp that identity, we look elsewhere. And so Peter keeps returning. He keeps hammering home this issue again and again as he's talking to these people. You can't miss it if you read through 1 Peter. You can't miss it at all. It's identity. It's who we are in Christ. It's who we are because of what Christ has done. It's who we are in Christ. And even this book, as we know, was written to to people who are suffering or who are about to suffer persecution, right? When you're suffering, as you face things that you don't expect, things that are painful and difficult, sometimes our concentration on that experience causes us to forget who we are. And the daily press of life, like I said a minute ago, school and education and job and family and hobbies and sports and everything else, they cause us to forget who we are. But Peter, over and over and over reminds these people of their identity. Verse 5, he calls them a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Verse 6, the people who, who are to build their lives on Jesus. Verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God, a people to proclaim God's excellencies. Verse 10, God's people, a people who have received mercy. Verse 11, sojourners and exiles, people who live here, but this isn't their home. Verse 12, a people to glorify God. He reminds them over and over and over of their identity so that they don't forget it. And so that in remembering their identity in Christ, there's courage to act. There's courage to move on. There's courage to be set apart as Christ has set us apart to be his own. Right? You're going to hear me talk about identity a lot over the next few weeks. You're going to hear Ben talk about identity whoever is preaching, Brent, whoever it might be, it's all throughout this book. I'm going to highlight it over and over and over because it's so imperative to the Christian life. Our identity is in Christ, 
and what Christ has done for us and who Christ has set us apart to be and what Christ has called us to do. But moving on, I think there's another danger that Peter actually attacks here. Inasmuch as he's driving home this concept of identity, uh, I think there's another danger that Peter warns against. And I actually think this danger is pretty prevalent in the Western church today. I've already talked about identity amnesia, but I'm going to call the second danger gospel amnesia. And it may not make sense at first, but I think that the danger is pretty real and it's very subtle in our culture and in our society, and especially in this culture that we call the Bible Belt. I think we're pretty susceptible to adding things to the gospel that don't belong there. I think we're pretty susceptible to misunderstanding the gospel. But verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 8, verses 9 through 10, verses 11 and 12 of Peter, they all point back to Jesus. They all point back to what Jesus has done. They all point back to mission and identity and identity and mission and Jesus and what Jesus has done, right, over and over and over. A few weeks ago, in the Gospel Fluency Workshop, Ben defined the gospel in this way. And I'm going to read a, a, a paragraph here, so stay with me. God, who is holy, created man and woman in his own image, and he placed them into a right relationship with him for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God in all the earth. Man inherited the sins of Adam, who chose to fall from perfect relationship with God in order to seek satisfaction in his own wisdom and understanding. Therefore, all after Adam are sinners, worthy only of death. God, in his great love for humanity and his creation, sent Jesus Christ, his only Son, both fully God and fully man, to live, die, be buried, rise again, and ascend to the right hand of his Father, to rule over his kingdom in order to justify sinners, to pay the wages of sin that man was completely unable to pay on our own behalf. He did this so that those who respond with faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, could be restored into right relationship with God and could rightly live with their created purpose of glorifying God in all the earth, joining with God in the work of restoration. I think oftentimes we're pretty susceptible to misunderstanding the gospel. We're susceptible to adding to the gospel. And it's not like the gospel is a recipe, so don't, uh, that's not the illustration I'm making. But if you, if you bake a cake, and you add things to it or you take things away, you end up with something different than was intended. When we add to the gospel, when we take away from the gospel, we end up with something that was not intended at all. And we end up with something pretty deadly in, in its place. To break it down a little further, God did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And we are saved not by what we do, but by what Jesus did on our behalf. And all of Scripture arcs toward the story of God's redemption in Jesus. If you want to look for what ties the Bible together, it's the gospel. If you want to look for what ties the story of all of Scripture together, it's the story of God's redemption that ultimately leads to Jesus. We like to organize Scripture in certain ways, right? Depending on what theological background we come from, we, organ we organize Scripture according to covenants. We order Scripture according to dispensations dispensations or times we order scripture according to all these other things but what ties all of scripture together is the story of God's redemption 
It's the story of Jesus acting on our behalf. It's the gospel that ties Scripture together, and that's exactly what Peter is doing in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus' redemption. And so the gospel is about Jesus, and the gospel is about what Jesus did, and it's about Jesus setting apart a group of people to be his church. It's about Jesus making a people who were not a people into a people. It's about the work of Christ and what that work accomplished. And through the work of Christ, we're no longer defined by our nationality. We're no longer defined by our race or religion or anything else we'd use to draw lines that separate us. When we're in Christ, we're only defined by Christ and the work of Christ. And when we misunderstand the work of Christ, when we add to the work of Christ, we end up with something deadly. What I see happening across a lot of American churches and Western Christianity is a group of people proclaiming a gospel that more closely aligns with certain cultural values and societal norms than with who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Now, that's not true of all churches. That's not true of all churches. That's not true of all Christians. But I think it's happening in our society. And, and quite frankly, it scares me. I, I don't know how else to explain that there are so many churches in our country and so little evidence of Christians being more concerned about making disciples than they are about paying lower taxes. I don't know how else to explain that Christians would be more concerned about sitting in seats of power than about proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. I don't know how else to explain that Christians would be more concerned about fitting in than speaking and proclaiming the gospel to a lost world, right? That sounds like an indictment on our culture, and to some extent it is. But we're missing the point. If we think that Scripture and the gospel is about anything other than who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus called us to be, we as a church, Redemption Church in Augusta, Georgia, we as a church in America, we've got to remember the gospel. Through the gospel, Jesus died to make us his own. Through the gospel, Jesus made us his own and set us apart. And Jesus, through the gospel, set us apart to proclaim his excellencies. He did not set us apart or anything else other than his purposes. It doesn't make sense to me that God's people in our culture, in our society, would be focused on the wrong things unless we've misunderstood the gospel and what Jesus actually accomplished and did through his life, death, and resurrection. Listen to me. Stay with me on this. Jesus didn't die for our nation. Jesus didn't die for our government. Jesus died for his people, the church. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save a nation called the United States of America. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make America great. He died on the cross to save people who live in America and Uganda and Russia and Egypt and Spain, and Haiti, and China, and North Korea. God doesn't make covenants with nations. It's bad theology to think that he does. God makes covenants 
with people. With the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God established a new covenant and created a new entity, and that new entity is the church. And that church has a purpose to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, and that is it. And through Christ being proclaimed, and through the gospel going forth, and through the gospel encountering a culture that is so messed up, that culture has the potential to be changed, but not by anything other than the proclamation of the gospel and Jesus' work in the hearts and lives of people. It's time for the church to embrace. It's time for us at Redemption Church to embrace the fact that our standing in the world is not based on any political power or prestige or influence we wield in our societies and cultures and states and nations. Our standing in the world is based on what Jesus did. The fact that Jesus died to set us apart as his people, as a called out group empowered not to create a Christian nation, but to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples in every nation. Are you with me, church? Amen. The gospel is not defined by, nor did it come from American society, American government, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, Southern culture, or anything else. None of those groups have been entrusted with proclaiming the excellencies of the one that saved us. The church was entrusted with that responsibility. And after all the nations of the earth cease to exist, and they will, God's people will still be set apart for God's purposes, whether that be on this earth or whether it be in a new heaven and a new earth. Are you with me? For us as Christians, we must absolutely be defined by and live in light of the truths of the gospel and scripture and nothing else. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Peter is hammering home the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the identity that, that brings, and the work that Christ has done for us. In 1 Peter verses, I mean chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, very specific, specifically, Peter says to build our life on Jesus. And if you don't, you're going to trip over Jesus. Paul says it a little differently in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes this, Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to... To Christ, right? Paul goes a little further and says, don't you understand that the gospel of Jesus, right? The gospel of the cross, the gospel of grace, the gospel of acceptance and provision and promises of Jesus, it's not just for your entry into faith. It's meant to be the lifestyle of your faith. It's through the gospel of Jesus that we are given acceptance with God. But Paul says, don't stop there. Live in light of that. Live in light of the gospel. In verse 8, Paul says, do not be taken captive by the vain philosophies of this world. Right? And, and just in case you're wondering, that's war language. That's battle language. See to it that no one takes you captive. There's a battle for the rulership of our hearts every day. That's what um, a concept I, I, I garnered from Paul David Tripp, that every day there's a battle for the rulership of your heart. Will it be won by the vain philosophies of this world or will it be won by the gospel? 
Will your heart be ruled by the truths of the gospel that shape your motivation, that directs your behavior, that guards your thoughts? Or is your practical life, practical life actually directed by vain philosophies? So much so that you lose sight of what the gospel is and you develop gospel amnesia. There are two great warnings for us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we would forget our identity in Christ and that we would forget the truth of the gospel and what that actually means for us. Let me give you a reality check. You cannot understand what's going on in this world without the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot understand your identity without Jesus. You cannot understand the purpose of your life without Jesus. You cannot understand what's wrong with you without Jesus. You cannot understand how it will be solved without Jesus. You can't have proper values without Jesus. It's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Jesus. And so Paul says, just as you receive Christ, live in him. And Peter says, build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus. The gospel is not just a ticket into the kingdom. And then we get to wander off and do whatever we want. That's false. That's tragedy. Right? That's terrible to think that the gospel gets us in and then we go do whatever we want. No, the gospel gets us in and then it sustains us. And we build on Jesus and we build on what Jesus did. We build on what Jesus set us apart to be. Guys, this is going to get real for a second. But I think there's evidence even amongst us that we've forgotten the gospel and we've forgotten our identity. That we've developed gospel amnesia and that we've developed identity amnesia. And it's probably playing out in different ways in our lives. Some of us in this room are probably in debt because we're not living in light of the gospel. Some of us in this room, we're not giving and being charitable like we should because we're not living in light of the gospel. Some of us in this room are in broken relationships because we're not living in light of the gospel. Some of us in this room, we're enslaved to things that we should not be enslaved to because we're not living in light of the gospel. Some of us are fearful and anxious because we're not living in light of the gospel. Some of us are trusting the vain philosophies of this world because we're not living in light of the gospel. Some of us aren't loving our fellow believers because we're not living in light of the gospel. Some of us aren't loving our neighbors and our enemies because we're not living in light of the gospel. And some of us aren't confronting our sins and our idols because we're not living in light of the gospel. We've forgotten who we are in Christ. We've forgotten what Jesus did for us. We've forgotten what Jesus' salvation, how that practically plays out in our lives. We've forgotten these things. And as a congregation, as a group of people, as individuals, there are areas of our life where the gospel has not transformed us. There are areas of our life that are unevangelized by the gospel and that need to be reclaimed and submitted to the Lordship of Christ. So church, hear me. Hear me. Peter is calling us to remember our identity. 
Peter is calling us to ground and build our lives on the person of Jesus and the truth of the gospel, right? The actual gospel. Not what we think the gospel is, but the actual gospel. So let's speak that gospel to one another. Let's rehearse it together. Let's believe it. Let's encourage one another to live in light of it. Because there are some very real and some very practical ways that plays out in our life. Peter hammers home. Don't forget your identity. Peter hammers home. Don't forget the gospel. Instead, build your life on Jesus. Instead, make Jesus the cornerstone of your life. Instead, Jesus. Don't forget who you are in Christ. Don't forget what Christ has done for you. Don't forget the mission that that sends you on, right? All throughout 1 Peter, all throughout this passage, and we'll see it again and again over the next couple of weeks, identity and mission, mission and identity, and it's all grounded in Christ, what Christ has done, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and what Jesus has called us to be. We're going to enter into a time of response. I would encourage you during our time of response to to maybe reflect on some of those things. Uh, Perhaps I stepped on your toes a little bit this morning. That was not my intention. Uh, My intention was to point out the way that the gospel actually plays out in our lives. And so if I stepped on your toes, uh, maybe this is a a moment to sit back and reflect on maybe what the Holy Spirit and what God is doing in your hearts and minds um, even now. Uh, The band's going to come back up and lead us in worship through singing. Uh, We have an opportunity to continue to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings, tithes and offerings. There'll be people available to pray with you in the back if you want to pray, talk to anybody about anything. And as well, we have the opportunity to take communion. We take communion every Sunday here at Redemption in order to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. that's, That's what Scripture says Uh, communion is all about anyway. We're remembering what Christ has done. We're proclaiming that we believe it. And so if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, God gives you the freedom to do so. I would encourage you to come and uh, take communion. But know that when you take communion, you're remembering what Christ has done. You're proclaiming that you believe it. If you can't do those things, I would encourage you not to come and take communion this morning, to stay where you are, not so that you'll be singled out, because I don't want you to come and do something that you can't do. But I do want you to hear what we're saying, what we're celebrating as we come and take communion. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for First Peter. Thank you for First Peter chapter 2. And for the reminders we have repeatedly throughout this book and passage of who you've made us to be, what you've called us to do, and how Jesus has accomplished that on our behalf. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. I pray even now as we uh, respond, as we take communion and sing and all the other things, that Jesus would be the center of our focus, that Jesus would be the reason that we worship and celebrate and take communion. I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place, that we're drawn to you because of Jesus and Jesus alone. God, we ask all this in the name of your son. Amen.